The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. If you're interested in new and exciting business models, you've heard of Warby Parker. The glasses company isn't in New Zealand, but changed the world of how glasses were made, sold and priced. It had an innovative direct-to-consumer model where people could get pairs sent to their house to try and then send back. It was battling against monster incumbents that owned the whole distribution chain and so could charge what they liked, and they made cool glasses affordable. It's now a retail phenomenon also, but the digital-first approach and innovative ideas have a New Zealand connection. One of the first investors and advisors to the company was Kiwi David Bell, a professor at Wharton in the US, who taught the founders and even contributed to the try-at-home idea. David has also been an investor in pioneering online companies like Diapers.com, Bonobos and Harry's. He's back in New Zealand for a spell and we're very lucky to have him in the studio to chat ideas, ventures and the ever-evolving world of digital commerce. Fuck. Uh, ventures and the ever-evolving world of digital commerce. Kia ora, thank you for being here. Hey, kia ora, Simon. Real pleasure to be here. And uh, small world indeed. I got introduced to you by another friend named Simon, uh, <laughs> Simon Robertson. So uh, great to be here and good to chat. Ah, so cool. Hey, so first up, David, like what took you to the US and how long have you called that home? Oh, man. So I actually went to the United States way back in 1991 and um, I was an undergrad student here at Auckland University and then... I'd gone into the MCOM program primarily as a way to avoid, you know, getting into the workforce <laughs> and just happened to be very fortunate that I had these incredible classmates who were going to the United States to do PhD, something I'd never really contemplated myself. But we kind of had a train of, of, of guys. Uh, one went to Northwestern University, which is a pretty famous place for marketing. That's where Phil Kotler comes from. Uh, actually, the marketing textbook we use with the four Ps uh, came out of Northwestern. Another fellow went to the Wharton School and then... Uh, a guy who's a good friend to this day, we, we called him the Boy Wonder. So the Boy Wonder down here in New Zealand applies to all these top schools in America. He's going to MIT, Stanford, Columbia, Wharton, gets into all of them, like every single program, uh, and then decided to go to MIT. So he was my office mate for a time, and I thought, oh, this could be kind of fun. You know, I've always wanted to go to the United States and uh, had a real sort of affinity, I think, for uh, California after watching, you know, L.A. Law and <laughs> Chips on TV. And so I just put my hat in the ring and I applied and, you know, was lucky enough to get into Stanford and, and then uh, took off. That's so cool. Like, what attracted you to the world of academia <laughs> and especially like somewhere like Stanford that has, um, 
you know, such a storied place in contributing to so many of these great kind of innovative companies? Well, I think unlike some of my Kiwi colleagues that really got me into that, it was really sort of a bit of a backdoor entry, if you will. It was really like, gee, I'd love to go and try and live in the United States. There's different ways one can do it. If you get a student visa, that makes the entry point a little bit easier. And um, just for the listeners, you know, one distinction between, say, doing an MBA or a PhD, uh, MBA, you typically have to pay a lot of money. Um, a PhD, if you're fortunate, you can get a scholarship. So that was also, as a poor uh, Kiwi student, quite appealing to be able to, uh, be able to get in there for free. What I didn't realize on entry is that if you go into a PhD program, there's an expectation on the part of the faculty. It's not enforceable, but there is an expectation that you kind of go into academia. So, you know, Simon, if you went to... Um, you know, MIT for your PhD, and then when you exited, you decide to go and start a company or work for Google, uh, no one can stop you doing that. But your advisor, you know, she or he might be a little bit disappointed because of all the time and effort they put into training you, they would like to then see you go on to be a professor at NYU. So that's kind of how the system works. I didn't realize that going in, but sort of having been in there two or three years, I thought, it's actually not a bad career, you know, going into, uh, into academia. And that's how they keep such a high caliber of people teaching at them, I imagine. <laughs> That's part of it. And, you know, some areas, too, are very, very competitive. I mean, even in the mid-90s when I was a student, um, my mentor actually was a great guy who's now a professor over in Queensland. He was an Aussie, so they would pair you up with somebody uh, after you got accepted, and he was one year ahead of me. And Steve, I think in his class, um, there were three or four other finance PhDs at Stanford, but they all had PhDs upon entry. <laughs> so they were like, physics, mathematics, and chemistry PhDs because it's quite difficult to get jobs sometimes. Um, in the hard sciences, you need to do a postdoc. And so if you're good at maths, you might say, gee, let me go and become you know, uh, a finance professor at the University of Chicago. is a better gig than trying to get a postdoc uh, somewhere else. And for people that aren't familiar with the American system, you know, Kiwis living in our really collegial kind of university system <laughs> where, you know, everyone kind of rubs up against each other. But the, the, the difference in the states is there's such a stratification to the universities with that concentration among the kind of super elite. In Wharton, where you ended up being a professor, that's kind of right up in that top tier of the business ones, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is It is a good school. I think, um, you know, there's a number of good schools over you know, Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, Chicago, uh, and so on. And I think what it comes down to sometimes, either as a student or as a faculty, is sort of just a, a personal fit with the philosophy of the school. So, uh, you know, one thing I really liked about Wharton is pretty big, but it's quite practically oriented. It's not a super theoretical school. So you could do, if you wanted to, some abstract theoretical economics, that would be fine. But you could also work on problems that were actually of interest to business, and the school kind of valued that. So almost a bit of an engineering, sort of a bit Kiwi-esque, you know, sort of here's a business problem, let me hack it away at it and try and solve it and, and, and publish something about it along the way. And that's a key distinction, although lots of places around the world are catching up with it, aren't they? And that in the States, often you have people who are the professors who are also on boards of companies and, yes. uh, you know, uh, entrepreneurial <laughs> as well. And I think Wharton was one of the kind of early kind of trailblazers and Stanford in doing that. Is that right? Yeah, 100%. So I think Stanford, you know, probably with proximity to Silicon Valley, you get a lot of really incredible professors, particularly in the sciences, you know, computer science, engineering, to some extent in the business school too, um, who get involved in early stage companies, some of the iconic ones, you know, going back to Google and those those kind of things. Um Wharton certainly too. There were a number of faculties, uh, including one of my, my great mentors, a fellow called Len Lodish, who really got me into early stage investing and so on. I mean, Len was a, um, 
a student at MIT, and it was very, very practical almost from day one as an academic publishing papers with ideas that really helped companies, starting companies themselves, and so on. So that's something I think somewhat a little bit unique to to, uh, to Wharton and probably to some extent also to MIT has a bit of that ethos to it. And you started uh, the first digital marketing course there and kind of wrote the book on it when it was still a really emerging uh, emerging discipline, kind of ready to take on the world. What attracted to you to that area? What caught your well, interest? Well, you know, so many things that happen in life, right? So it's just pure kind of serendipity. So, you know, I ended up going to graduate school thanks to having just a bright uh, office mate at the University of Auckland. And then in academia, you know, back in the late 90s, um, early 2000s when I was starting at Wharton, there was a whole cottage industry of people. I was one of them. Um, analyzing barcode scanner data, you know, from supermarkets. So you're trying to understand, gee, uh, if Coke drops the price, do people buy uh, buy more Coke instead of Pepsi? Do they accelerate their drinking? Do they go to a different store? It's all the fundamental consumer behaviors using sort of regression-based uh, techniques to do it. And then just around the time that the internet sort of 1.0 was kicking off, I just happened to be at Wharton, and uh, there was a fellow who was doing his MBA program out in uh, Wharton, San Francisco, part-time, uh, was the founder of diapers.com. And what I found really interesting was if you and I have a you know traditional retail store, uh, the good news is that the catchment area is kind of known. We know the customers are going to be people close to the store. As they get further away, no one's going to visit. So we know where the customers are. The bad news is the market's pretty limited, right? E-commerce is kind of the flip side. It's almost appropriate for COVID <laughs> because what you're trying to understand is now you have this massive market and how does an e-commerce company grow its footprint, like where does it spread, where does it take off, is there any kind of contagion process. So I was kind of approaching that problem from an academic point of view, and just so happened that Mark at uh, diapers.com gave me a bunch of data to play around with, and that was really what sort of tweaked my initial interest in, uh, in e-commerce. And also investing, because was that one of the first kind of things that you had a real <laughs> kind of hit with, as um, there's been an amazing track record of some of these companies that you know, have been sold to, even if, um, you know, in New Zealand, quite away from it, we definitely have all heard of the places that they're sold to, whether it be a, a Walmart or a, an Amazon. Or an Amazon. Yeah, you know, I think, honestly, Simon, you know, if you're just lucky to be in a place with a lot of good people around. So, you know, Mark um, had the idea for diapers.com, gave us this data. I was playing around with it, again, through Len, uh, who I think was on the board and, and quite a serious investor. Um, then I got into a little bit of investing in, in diapers.com, too. And then the way that kind of segued into Warby is in 2010, you know, I was teaching the intro to marketing class at Wharton. There was no um, no classes at all on e-commerce. It wasn't really a thing. And um, even though you had to kind of teach in lockstep with the other professors, so all the students get the, the same material. In my class, I'd spend five minutes, you know, showing some maps of the U.S. and these e-commerce sales spreading. And anyway, I'm doing office hours and who should come into the office? But, you know, the four guys um, who founded Warby Parker, three of whom were in my class, one Andy was in a different section. So, well, yeah, we've got this idea to do something in e-commerce. I was like, okay, what is it? Well, we're going to sell glasses online. So I'm sitting there, you know, this is why I'm the prof, not doing it. I'm thinking, it's a bit of an odd idea. You know, fast forward now to 2020, it's a $2 billion plus uh, company. So there you go. Yeah, and amazing that, um, you, you know, that direct consumer model where you initially go, oh, well, I don't know if that sounds like a good idea, but talk us through actually helping them land some of those kind of key thoughts, like the that really innovative way to try the glasses on by getting them all sent to you. Yeah, so very interesting. So here's a good bit of you know academic jargon. I can't sort of uh, escape my roots too much, but um, there's a phrase that one of my advisors at Harvard came up with, Rajiv Lal, and he talked about digital versus non-digital product attributes. And a digital attribute 
is a feature of a product that if you experience it online or offline, it doesn't really make any difference. So this is probably why Jeff Bezos started with books, right? If I buy a book online or offline, there's no confusion about the price or the title or what, what I'm actually buying. If I buy a pair of shoes online, yeah, are they going to fit? Are my friends going to think they're cool? So to get over this sort of non-digital attribute problem, I sort of said to the guys, well, you know, aren't glasses kind of tactile? Don't people want to touch and feel them? They said, oh, yeah, we've thought of that. So we said, well, okay, how are we going to address this? Well, we're not going to open stores. We're going to go direct to consumer. But maybe what we do is we could ship them to people and they could try them out. So then we started ideating around, should we ship three? Should we ship five? Should we ship seven? Um, should we seed one of the things, let people choose four? But that was a really clever idea, you know, that we kind of co-ideated that the guys, you know, came into the office with because uh, what it effectively did is it got them PR. So they were called by GQ the Netflix of glasses, <laughs> number one. Number two, it got people over the barrier of the tactile product. Do I want to sort of try it out before I buy it? Um, and number three, what's also really interesting, the conversion on that home try-in is about 50%. So you send out 100 boxes about 50 people will buy at least one pair within a two-month period. So you might say, well, it costs money to send a box and get it back. What about the 50 people that did not buy? Well, it turns out there's actually a marketing uh, play there. So if I could get you, know, you, Simon, to order a box here to the office, even if you don't buy, you might show them to half a dozen other people. So we never actually published this paper, but you could show with a bit of analysis that the word-of-mouth value from exposure probably compensated for the 15 bucks backwards and forwards with a box. So there's a number of things about that idea that I think were were really interesting, including how it relates to stores, which I can get into later as well. And, and definitely saved the cost of having to open up a massive footprint of stores to get people <laughs> to, to try things Yeah, on. And, and actually what's super interesting about that, one of the first studies that we published using data from Warby Parker showed that when they opened up a store or a showroom, a place where people could physically go in and try the product on, what then happened was people who really wanted to try 15 or 20 pairs would go into that environment. Therefore, they were not ordering three or four boxes because sometimes people would order multiple try-ons, which obviously hits your cost. So the really clever thing there was when you open a physical store, the conversion rate on the home try-on actually goes up because the people who still choose to order five, when they could have gone in and tried out 50 in a shop, are sort of saying, yeah, five is enough for me. So the people who end up in that bucket end up better matched to the bucket so it's kind of interesting to see how the online, the try-on, and the store all kind of interplay in the way they address needs of different kinds of customers. Yeah, and probably also how it creates a sense of extra safety and security around the brand as well. Like <laughs> having visited a few of the stores around the place, you know, they're beautiful stores. And so those kind of temples of retail <laughs> that support the the online first model, uh, like galleries. Yes, 100%. I think, you know, this is, is anecdotal, but I think it's there's some grain of truth to it. If you've looked at companies who started in the offline world, and it's not to pick on anyone or denigrate them, but, you know, if you took Macy's as a big retailer in the US and then Macy's.com comes along, and you compare that with Warby Parker, who starts online. So when Warby Parker starts online and opens offline stores, the stores are amazing. They're fantastic. When the legacy companies you know, start offline and then they add .com and they build a website, it tends to be pretty lousy. So there's sort of interesting asymmetry because I think when you're online first, there's a part of the DNA that brings you a lot closer to the customer. And so when you then build a retail store that's a physical expression of what you do, Somehow it's more coherent and it's more interesting when you've kind of started with the physical legacy and you try to bolt on e-commerce, at least from what I've seen, it often doesn't go as well as, the, as you might hope. Yeah, 
that's so interesting. And I wonder if part of that as well is the approach to data that's so cooked into uh, an online first business where, you know, maybe a Macy's just throws up a, well, you know, here's our product catalogue and um, the name Macy's on top of it. While uh, an, an e-commerce store when getting to the real world is like, well, I wonder what the consumers want to do in yeah. this space. No, and that, that, that's something I think that really excited me too. You know, being a guy who for years had an, analysed the scanner data, right, you know what people are buying and you know the characteristics. And the online world you can go even further than that. You know their geolocation, you know how much time they spend on the site, you know with whom they interact. And, you know, you mentioned at the top of the hour, um, or the top of the cast, uh, Simon, another company that I really like, Harry's, harrys.com, the men's grooming company. And Jeff Rader, who was one of the Warby founders, also founded Harry's using a similar playbook. But one thing that he did was different is he actually bought a factory. So he controls his own manufacturing and his own product development. And um, they're highly engaged with customers about what is the next cycle of product looks like, what kind of feedback do we get on the periodicity of shipping, let's let people control the rate at which the raises come. So just really, really customer sort of friendly and super nimble in their, their thinking. Yeah, and in New Zealand, these companies haven't got there because we're such a blip, you know, not even Amazon's really got any kind of footprint here. But the the disruption that was caused by those um, companies to very comfortable monopolistic or duopolistic kind of industries uh, with, you, you know, Harry's the razor um, uh, against kind of the Gillette consortium of companies owning 70% market share at some point. And then also Warby Parker into a situation where the whole value chain is owned by a very small concentration of companies who charge you $500 for moulded plastic that costs a couple of bucks. You know, it's it's a wild space to be able to come in and then create so much more value while still having a massive margin. Yeah, 100%. And I think, um, I think too, you know, I always used to like to go back to this old cartoon. You know, I'm old enough to remember uh, 1993. I guess I was still a student then, but... 1993, you know, there was this kind of cartoon that came out in the New Yorker. There's like a little dog, you know, maybe Stanley, he's talking to another little dog and dog number one's on the computer. And he looks down at his buddy and he says, you know, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Okay, because you could kind of do things in anonymity. If you fast forward to today, right, um, you really can't kind of have a bad product without people knowing about it. You can't really have a bad customer experience without that being all over the internet. So I think when you deal direct with consumers, it gives you this kind of discipline uh, and even, I guess, the contextual environment gives you this discipline that you have to have good products. You have to be transparent in what your your margin structure is. You have to be not ripping people off. And way back in the day when Warby first launched, you know, to your point, Simon, they literally had a little bar graph on the back of the website where, you know, here's the cost for us and for them, both $25. The other guys are charging you 400 because they're building in this massive margin. We're not doing that. We're sort of being fair about it. And... Um, Brands like, you know, Everlane and the clothing space kind of took that to the next level, like actually itemizing all the cost components. So you sort of felt, well, yeah, that's kind of fair. I don't mind paying $25 for the T-shirt because I can see all the component of cost. I, I love that you mentioned Everlane there. Is that, that was exactly what jumped in, which, yeah, again, in, in New Zealand, it's not really so much on the radar here, but it's a company where if you go on the website and see their cashmere jumper, they tell you how much it costs to grow the cashmere, how much it costs to mill it, how much it costs them to, to cut, sew, and trim, and to ship, and then what their margin is. And it's all, all itemised, which... Um, and another innovation that's become really powerful with Everlane, but yeah, uh, Warby Parker was one of the first places that you saw that. And also, um, 
the give-back model that's been huge in other companies as well that was kind of baked into the beginning of Warby as well. Yeah, and that's something I think I find, you know, when you work with founders, they're, they're a little bit maligned as a group sometimes, the millennial or the uh, the Gen Z, but what the, the founders of that sort of um, demographic, if you will, tend to do, I mean, from the get-go, they're kind of baking in things that they believe in in terms of it's better for you as a customer because it's cheaper, it's the same quality, it's a better journey. But in some sense, it's also better for the world. So maybe I'm not using single-use plastic or maybe for everything that I sell, you know, I'm doing good for somebody else. And I think the Warby guys now have given away, I think I heard Neil actually on a podcast the other day, um, that they've given away maybe about 7 million glasses. And that's that's really clever, right, and really impactful because if I'm living in an environment where I can't really see and you give me glasses, I can see, I can get educated, I can get a better job, it's economic impact for my family. So... Um, What's interesting about it too is I think it's very authentic to the DNA of what those companies do and it's sort of right there from day one as opposed to, you know, you're a CEO of a company and you're looking out at social trends and saying, oh, we better do something good or people won't like us. You know, it's 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 uh, it's interesting when it's there at the core. Yeah, when you mentioned before about the internet today and the connection between consumers means you can't have a dog product, the example I always kind of land on um, is the cream egg and you know the cream egg like if you think of a cream egg you get these warm feelings of these ads and the kid behind the desk and you know it feels like something exciting but then when you taste them it's kind of a I don't know not the kind of product that you could ever imagine kind of um, people saying hey you've got to taste this thing it's kind of gooey weird consistency and too sweet to eat and all the rest of it Um, but the advertising kind of carried the product but in this model the product kind of is the advertising and you mentioned Casper before as well uh, which is another kind of antecedent of what has been um, pioneered by some of these great first direct-to-consumer companies. Yeah 100% I think you know all of those companies um, you know really brought three things to the table in in simplistic terms so they bought more value better pricing so unlock value for customers. Um, Number two they bought a quality innovation or at least a quality parity in terms of the functional um, ability of the product to to perform and to deliver. And then the third thing that was often a huge innovation is they bought like a really great customer journey to the experience. So you know buying glasses before you know maybe it was not that great or razors you got to get someone with a key to come and unlock (laughs) you know the cabinet in the pharmacy or the drugstore depending on what part of the world you're in. And you know buying a mattress also can be a little bit of a allows the experience. So you innovate on those three things to different degrees and you create a package that really kind of resonates with uh, with customers. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fund that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. Check it out through the spin-off. And tell me a little bit more about that Harry's uh, journey as that was such a hot space with the... Um, Dollar Shave Club that lots of people would have heard of, already, you know, a, a kind of big player. But there's still, you know, it's really interesting, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, that there's still being room in places where there's already been a big disruption event, yes. but still, if you can find that right value match. No, 100%. And it's funny you should mention that, because it is a space that really fascinates me too. So, you know, Dollar Shave launched uh, prior to Harry's, and Dollar Shave, a few guys, you know, have watched the video, Michael Dubin's really hilarious. It's really authentic, I think, to him, to the audience. As soon as you're laughing along with a video, you kind of imagine sort of a frat boy type guy buying the stuff. And, you know, he was a very, very thoughtful fellow. I heard him uh, speak at a conference once at Goldman Sachs where he said people would literally run up to other people in the store and show his video and say, hey, don't buy that, you know, buy this. So he created, you know, tremendous momentum. And I think what he also did, very clever, 
is he took a product that has no social observability to it and he made it public. So if you're wearing glasses, I might say, hey, Simon, cool glasses, sunglasses, where did you get them? But I'm not going to say to you, hey, man, well, today you've got a beard, but I'm not going to say to you, you know, hey, man, you know, what are you shaving with? Or I'm not going to poke around in your bathroom. So there's no social virality or visibility to the product. But what he did that was so clever is he created content that people shared that then became the conduit for the observability of the product. But, you know, that came out. Then Harry sort of comes with a different aesthetic, right? It's very sleek. It's German engineered. It's a little bit more elevated. I mean, if you talk to Jeff and Andy, the founders, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of names they went through before they landed on Harry, uh, which is approachable, but also kind of classy and so on. And then what's amazed me since then, Simon, you know, they've got now their female brand, which is Flamingo. Uh, there was another female brand called Billy's that was acquired, I think, recently by P&G. So you're seeing a number of players uh, in that space, all speaking to slightly different audiences with a different aesthetic and a different uh, price point. And something really interesting in there is this idea of the subscription model that was so vital to a few of those companies we've mentioned there, but not so important to some, like the, the Warby Parker. Are we seeing kind of um, a, a kind of fatigue now around <laughs> subscriptions? Are people have people got too many nine ninety nine uh, things coming out of their credit card oh every month God, and just goodness. having to knock them off? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, guys, you or, or um, our listeners out there, but yeah, every once in a while, you know, I get some free time. I go through my credit card. He's oh, you know, I'm doing care of vitamins. I'm doing Spotify. I'm doing this and that. So I think there was a little bit of fatigue. I think. Um, just those companies, you know, Harry's and Kerov both did something quite clever that I think others now have, have, have taken on board too. If you allow the customer to control the cadence, you get less sort of drop off. So if you're just mechanically, I'm shipping you four raises every month, as the inventory accumulates, you're like, man, I don't need this and you cancel. But if instead, you know, I send you an email a week prior and say, hey, Simon, you know, your raises are coming, do you need to delay? So that's been something that I think the, you know, the more, um, sounds like a simple innovation, but it's very impactful in terms of the customer lifetime value. So there are things like that that you can do to sort of get away from subscription fatigue. But I think your macro question, which is, have people just got too many line items on the credit card? I think if you speak to consumers, particularly now in COVID, a lot of people would say yes. So, you know, if you were to launch a business today with a subscription element, that's certainly a consideration that you'd want to try and think through, you know, can I squeeze onto the sheet and how long can I stay there? And in New Zealand, where again, you know, we're we're so kind of uh, insulated from the real world by our uh, low market size, so it's it's not a big prize to any of these big companies. But the Amazon effect as well, and I have this theory that a lot of subscription businesses have been killed by Amazon because with Prime, people can just uh, jump onto Amazon, buy something, set it to deliver once a month, and there's essentially no new charge for for the delivery and so the role of amazon t- tell me about kind of the growth of that and what that means today for launching businesses especially in the u.s yeah boy so this is really interesting so you know if you think about what amazon fundamentally offers to customers it's price and convenience and if that's your value proposition you're going to be you're going to be done for because you can't out price and you can't out uh, convenience i'm using sort of poor grammar here but you can't really beat amazon on those two two dimensions um, so I think in the days that sort of Warby and those companies were founded, we're going back now 10 years, seven, eight years, the idea was you could build a moat that was around brand. So if your whole thing was experience and discovery and brand, that's something that Amazon's not really going to give you. So you could go to Amazon and you could search for a whole bunch of glasses and buy some, that's fine, but you're not going to have the same kind of experience or the bond to the product that you would get from a company like Warby. So that was the initial moat, and the thinking always was, 
that you would never want to be an Amazon. And I, I think the evolution of D2C is really interesting because in the beginning, I think people thought, well, this might be a standalone business model just to be direct-to-consumer. But you quickly realize, well, actually, it can't be because some people still shop offline. And for most categories, offline could be 90% or more of the volume. So you've got to have an offline component. So that led to companies like Harry's embracing you know, wholeheartedly um, you know, Walmart and Target and supermarkets for all of their growth. Now I think we're at a point where companies are thinking about, you know, how do I actually embrace Amazon from, from the get-go? Do I do it under a different brand name? Uh, if I do it through my own name, Amazon's kind of up their game a little bit in terms of the way they let you show the brand on the website. But I think it's really hard to have a consumer and retail strategy now where you haven't at least put a stake in the ground of, am I going to be on Amazon or not? And sort of what's the rationale for it? Because the latest stat I saw, Brian, I think it was uh, Simon, sorry, something like... Um, Goodness, I think forty-nine or fifty percent of all searches for, for basic products kind of originate, you know, uh, within Amazon. So that's a staggering statistic that, you know, that you have to deal with one way or another. And it has become just the the basic uh, setting for if I'm going to get something, I'll get it sent through there because the logistics and the uh, purchase experience is so seamless for people. So, so seamless, and yeah. it's gone from being a you know, bargain basementy vibe to being just a really amazing um, delivery and fulfillment engine for people. So it is. I'd have to say, though, again, not to to disparage such an amazing company as probably one of the world's, if not the most valuable, certainly one of the the, the top two or three, uh, an incredible organization. But I still feel like you know when I'm on the site, whether it's on my phone or you know, it doesn't quite have the search functionality that I would like. It's a little bit prosaic. It's you know, the filters aren't quite there. But you know, having said that, I mean. The assortment, the pricing, the customer service, the delivery times, all the innovation they're doing with Amazon Go and drones and goodness knows what. It's kind of hard to argue against it. And looking at the world, you know, in this Amazon and, uh, you know, the amazing acceleration we've seen of so many of these trends that you've been tracking and contributing to over the years. You know, we've seen kind of, you know, 10 years of uh, e-commerce acceleration in three months uh, thanks to COVID. What are your criteria today to be excited about a company or (laughs) investing in an idea? Oh, man, great question. Such a hard question, too. I think, you know, there's probably three things that I still look for. Maybe I need a fourth or a fifth to add. But the first thing, you know, um, is this a founder that's that's fundamentally solving a real problem? You know, and oftentimes the founders, at least that I work with, who are in the consumer retail space, it's something out of a personal pain point. So let's go back to Warby since we mentioned that. You know, this was... Really, you know, Dave Gilboa, like losing his glasses, uh, leaving them on a flight, talking to Neil. Man, this really sucks. I can't afford to buy glasses. Neil, who worked in not-for-profit, giving people glasses, like, well, that's crazy. How can they be $500? And then, you know, sort of being great students and great thinkers, the four guys went to work and uncovered what you said at the top, Simon, which was this was an industry effectively owned by one large player that had the whole value chain kind of locked up. So I think, you know, always look for that. Is this really an authentic uh, founder approaching a problem that really needs to be solved. And with a bit of digging, you can kind of see if that's the case. Then number two, um, is there fundamentally like a great product that's coming out of this? So yeah, it's a problem, it needs to be solved, this is the person that can do it. Is the product, first and foremost, you know, better than or at least as good, ideally better than what's existing in the market? And then the third thing I think about is kind of a cute term I came across is the... Um, not the MVP, but the MVA, you know, the minimum viable audience. So who's the group to whom you could go that this product is really going to resonate and they're going to create that wedge and that momentum through social media and the direct channel that's really going to take you to the next level. So you think about, 
some old brands that we all know. So sort of, you know, Lululemon, you know, going down the rabbit hole of yoga instructors or the RX bar that has the ingredients listed on the outside sort of got picked up by the CrossFit community. So there's sort of a, a consumer wedge that happens. So I try to look for those three things. And then, of course, you want to get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty. Okay, what are the unit economics? How does the scale? What does the distribution strategy look like? But the top three are probably the core. And with those things, you keep coming back to the product and, you know, there being a real consumer and a, and a need being answered. It's interesting that, you know, some of the things you've been associated with have been so associated with tech and technology and, you know, new e-commerce. But that's not necessarily something that um, brings you to it. That's quite interesting. Yeah, I just tend to like basic stuff, right? I mean, you know, uh, as we go through our day, like, what do we do? You know, we, we eat stuff. Um, we have to wear clothes, you know, we have to clean our homes and ourselves. And so, so much of the product in that ecosystem, whether it's like toothpaste in a plastic tube, whether it's overpriced glasses, whether it's overpriced razors, whether it's food that really has very poor nutritional content. So as everyday consumers, you know, globally, we're interacting, frankly, with a lot of stuff uh, that's just pretty bad. And so you can have a guy like, you know, Michael Dubin at Dollar Shave say, hey, I'm kind of annoyed that these guys are charging me five bucks for a razor that maybe cost them 50 cents to make it. I'm just going to go out and do something about it. So the other thing that's, I think, really interesting here is that whole kind of tailwind of ecosystem um, that was never there 10 or 20 years ago is now there. Like you and I could literally go out tomorrow and start a company. We'd have payments, website, industrial design, like everything, you know, contract manufacturing, all of that stuff can be brought to bear so that someone like Michael, who is a comedian, you know, can go after uh, Gillette because he's kind of annoyed. <laughs> and where is the next, um, yeah, where do you think the next kind of Warby Parkers are going to be coming from? Oh, man. So I, I think um, one area, maybe going a little bit back to my, my roots of being a student, you know, analyzing basic behaviors in supermarkets. So in any economy that you go into, you know, grocery is just a massive part of it, right? Huge sector. Um, it's a sector that hasn't had a lot of e-commerce penetration traditionally. And it's an environment that's sort of full of stuff that's maybe not that great from, you know, the detergent to the paper towels to the toothpaste to the food. So I think a lot of those quote unquote basic products could be rethought, you know, toothpaste as a pill, um, you know, plant-based uh, protein in the food aisle, you know, drinking, um, you know, maybe not uh, almonds, I guess not so good now, but drinking oat milk, maybe in, I shouldn't say in New Zealand <laughs> instead of dairy. <laughs> but um I just think the rethinking of a lot of stuff that's everyday stuff and rethinking it through two lenses. One is better for you, so is it better for me as a consumer, and better for the world. And if I can kind of hit those two notes and deliver real value and do it through sort of a great brand and product lens, then then oftentimes you're really onto something. That idea of the supermarket experience being kind of bung, uh, there's so many places in it. Like um, when we recently went through the plastic bag, single-use plastic bag ban. And then you had to, you know, buy a thicker plastic bag, which in and of itself is <laughs> pretty dim. Uh, but then you get it home and you unwrap 50 products that all are covered in plastic and packaging. And you'd have to think that there's got to be some kind of way to, once you've selected your brand, if it did just arrive unpackaged and in the, the ecoist kind of, uh, you, you, you know, slice possible, that, yeah, there's so much room for, for changing that entire model. And with Whole Foods and Amazon, I, I, I imagine that that's yeah. probably what we're in for next. You know, it's interesting you should mention that because as a consumer, you sort of feel like that's a bit of the dark side of e-commerce, right, is the whole delivery in, uh, ecosystem and you get this big cardboard box that's full of like poppable plastic and there's like two or three things in the bottom and you just sort of feel like 
man, I feel kind of bad about that. You know, I collapse it up and I put it in the recycling area of my apartment building, but it just sort of feels a bit wrong, you know. And it's for like one pen or something and you've created all of this waste. <laughs> yeah, so I think, look, hopefully it's not an area that I've looked at too much directly, uh, but let, let's hope that people are working on that packaging, maybe this two-way packaging. I mean, I think what we are seeing, and I'll, I'll give a shout out to another Kiwi company, NoHo, um, Richard and his team, you know, they're building amazing, beautiful aesthetic furniture out of basically ocean waste plastic. So I think there are people who are kind of taking the lead on those things. But yeah, the e-commerce footprint of delivery and the footprint of, you know, the stuff that comes around it, you know, that that's something that certainly needs uh, needs tackling. And in terms of giving advice to entrepreneurs today, something you've done for a long time through your career uh, and then as an investor as well, what, what advice do you give to, um, you know, maybe a young or, or starting out New Zealand entrepreneurs wanting to kind of make something that could make it in the biggest and kind of most important consumer market of the States? Well, that's another tough question. But uh, I think, you know, um, first of all, I think, you know, the people that you meet who are building sort of great products, even if just starting in a small market like uh, like New Zealand, they tend to be people who are really trying to do something, right? So they already have the drive and the passion and the enthusiasm to create a better drink or a better piece of food or, you know, uh, some household detergent or whatever that product is. So so if they can kind of maintain that momentum. And then secondly, I think really important to sort of build the right ecosystem around them. So a lot of things can really be done now through arm's length partnerships. So, you know, again, this is a, an example that people in New Zealand will probably know. So you may remember way back when, when before All Birds was All Birds, you know, it was three over seven. That was the, the brand name and I forget the genesis of it. But you know, when that brand came to the United States and sort of got into the hands of Red Antler, who was at the, that time um, certainly one of the premier branding agencies in Brooklyn, and they said, you know, we're all coming from this prehistoric thing, we are all birds, and they redo the site, and then there's other things that happen in terms of who wears the shoes, and just there was an ecosystem that came around that fundamentally core great product that really helped it to accelerate. So I really encourage the New Zealand founders to think about who do I need in terms of the ecosystem. And then the third thing, I think, which is part of the New Zealand DNA, which is really important, particularly now, um, is how do I go as far as possible with as little as possible? And I think this is probably a whole separate <laughs> conversation or a separate sort of a rant, but I think we're seeing you know, some of the really great brands, uh, maybe without naming them, but some of the great brands in the US that were great consumer brands have fallen off the rails a bit from an investment point of view. And why is that? Because they took too much venture money, uh, primarily often from tech investors who are looking, swinging for the fences and, you know, telling you and I with our direct-to-consumer sock company that, you know, we're a $15 keep your body, $15 billion keep your body warm company, but actually what we really are is two dudes selling socks in a box that if we could get to $20 million, that would be amazing. So that's the third thing, the kind of, you know, strong unit economics and, and sort of... Um, capital efficiency, building the business the right way. And this goes back to old Clay Christensen, who was probably the most famous business academic of the last 50 years from Harvard Business School, unfortunately passed away not so long ago. But he had this very, very simple idea, which was there's profit and unit economics and there's growth. And there's an order to those two things. And almost always, I mean, maybe there's an exception if you're in tech and network effects, but you want to get the profit and the unit economics right first. And then when that's done, then get into growth and scale. And if you kind of reverse the model and you're growing like crazy and you're losing money, you know, that's usually a bad thing, unless maybe you're building like a Facebook or a LinkedIn and you know that the network eventually picks up. So that would be the uh, the third piece. You can look at a lot of the um, growth to meet expectations 
It's kind of an elaborate ruse by Facebook and Google to get you to spend more on demand gen advertising. As there's so many, you know, just just by um, you, you know, when it is a winner take all thing, it becomes the only way to go to get that market share and lose ahead. But the only real winner in the short term uh, are the the media companies. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I think you know that playbook of sort of taking venture money to you know sort of buy customers. That you know, um, I think there was a time when maybe you could have done that, but I think the time excuse me for that, has probably passed. Uh, and particularly, you know, an event is, is sort of, um, I don't know, cataclysmic is the right word, but you know, an event as sort of as severe as COVID um, is really kind of shining the light on, boy, how can you be cash efficient? How can you be really doing things in a way that's not leading to overcapitalization, taking too much money, being wasteful, all of those things that you could maybe have gotten away with 10 years ago. Uh, now you probably can't. And one question, that, uh, final question that we love to ask everyone, you know, having been involved in, uh, you, know, you know, as a as an investor, but also kind of like part of the advisory team for some really great brands that kind of changed the way that uh, that, that commerce has worked, and you know, ha- had a career as a professor at one of the the best business schools in the states. Like, what's your version of success, and what will kind of <laughs> success be for you? Oh man! So I think you know, to me, uh, and maybe it's partly from being an academic. I mean, I think success is, you know, the people that you meet on that journey and that you're able to learn from, and then also to maybe help out and and sort of help them learn as well. Uh, and that's probably the most gratifying thing, you know, independent of all of the other things that may come along with that. So, again, I'll give a tangible example. So, you know, here in New Zealand, not so long ago. I get a LinkedIn message from a former student who, I mean, can't be older than about 25, but she's building this sort of amazing set of brands in Southeast Asia and just sort of reached out to let me know what she was up to. I was like, man, that's really gratifying. And I actually did a Zoom call with her in the cafe where you and I had a coffee pre-COVID. And, you know, it was just like, you know, giving her a little bit of advice and actually also learning from her because now it's kind of a reverse mentor relationship with a lot of these people. So I think to me that's the success, you know, that you are in a place where you've just met a number of tremendous people, some of whom you've been able to help and many of whom you've also been able to learn from. And then sort of together, there's this kind of web of people who are just doing cool stuff that sort of makes you feel good, you know? Like you meet somebody who's, yeah, I'm making toothpaste as a pill, you know, so it doesn't go into the ocean. Well, that's great because now all this plastic is coming out of it. Or, you know, I'm building a company where part of it is, I'm going to somewhere in Brazil and I'm taking the product from a farm and man, now that guy can, you know, build a house and, you know, put his kids into school. So to me, I think, again, probably having been a former academic, my answer's too long, <laughs> but that's really, that's really the core of it. It's really the personal stuff that happens through that business process that I think is the most uh, gratifying. You know, like one last thing I'll say, since we talked about them a lot at the top, you know, like Neil and I from Warby had a nice little, like, like a Zoom call, both sort of sitting uh, in beach houses and respective places, you know, sheltering in space and just learning about what he was doing and telling him a little bit about why I'm, what I'm up to. And that's, you know, that's a 10-year relationship that's still fresh and still exciting to be part of. Ah, that's so cool. Well, thank you so much, David Bell, for coming and sharing your story today. A pleasure. Thank you, Simon. And if you'd like to hear more from David, look up uh, the Better by Design speech that he recently gave uh, for the conference, which is a, which is a boomer and there's a video online. Thanks so much. Thank you very much to Jose Barbosa for producing today. And thank you very much for having us along uh, in your ears. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation.
from the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.